This is Joachim here. I just wanted to quickly say that The Rocket, the film that James and I are discussing in the introduction, it will not be joining the Masters of Cinema collection, although we did not know this at the time. Alright, enjoy the show. My name is Joachim Thiessen, and you're probably thinking, hmm, why is not Tom introducing the show? Well, Tom will not be joining us for this conversation, and perhaps not for a few episodes in the future. He has decided to take a break from the MOC cast because of personal reasons, but he will return when he feels that he is up to it. But until then, the hosting responsibilities, they will lie with me now. The show will not be changing that much. I won't be changing the format or anything. Um, and we'll see what happens in terms of me bringing in another person to co-host with me. But with me today, I have a very special guest, James Marsh. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Great. Uh, before we get on to talking about your background and such, I just wanted to get through some MSC-related news because they have tweeted that they have two films at the London Film Festival this year. One is Computer Chess by Andrew Bajalski, which we already knew about, but there is another film that they are not telling us the title of, and the hint that they have given us is that it has been put forward by the um, Academy of Motion Pictures as its country of origins entrant for the Best Foreign Language feature at this year's Oscars. And all signs point to an Australian film called The Rocket, directed by Kim Mordaunt. It is being distributed in the UK by Eureka, and it is about a boy who he is believed to bring bad luck to everyone around him. And his family and two new friends, they kind of travel through Laos in search of a new home. And through this kind of journey, there, through this war-torn country they he's trying to prove that is not bad luck by building a giant rocket that will enter a sort of dangerous competition the rocket festival and that's pretty much it that i could find out have you heard about this film the rockets i haven't heard of it at all actually uh hmm. i'm just looking it up now and uh it seems it seems pretty interesting actually it does uh... it does Something uh, unique. We can always count on that from the MOC. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, computer chess, on the other hand, um, I've seen that, uh, hmm. and I'm. I think it's all right. I'm not a. I'm not a sort of huge fan of it. It's got a very interesting sort of old school aesthetic to it. It. Uh, I'm not sure if it actually uses old style sort of cameras or anything like that, but it certainly hmm. gives that impression, and uh, it's it's quite. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's very quirky, sort of sense of humour in it, but uh, there's a few, there's a few things in it that that did bother me, but uh, perhaps I'll save those for another time. But hmm. uh, I, 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 sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say that it sort of seems something of a kind of companion piece to Simon Killer that this, they're making this effort to uh, pick up, you know, new films as well and and sort of champion hmm. some contemporary filmmakers rather than just you know keep sticking with the the old masters as it were so i guess in that respect it should be it should be applauded and appreciated and i i certainly like that that cool poster that they've done for it that was good hmm. 
What did you think of Simon Killer? You mentioned that earlier. Um, uh, again, <laughs> it, <laughs> it was it was interesting, but I I wasn't overly enamoured by it at the end of the day. I felt it was a little uh, pretentious for the sake of being pretentious, and it mm. could it could have been uh, it could have benefited, I think, from being slightly more straightforward and slightly more. Uh, Sort of clear cut about its intentions, uh, but the, mm. but it's an impressive performance, and uh, I liked I liked where it went. I just didn't perhaps like how it got there mm. in terms of, yeah. sort of the aesthetic choices. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I will say my like deep thoughts for it when we do a show on it sometime. But right. um, I was pleasantly surprised after reading all these horrible forum posts and like everyone bashing it basically i felt that it had a lot more going for it than people gave it credit for okay okay well i mean they certainly do a good job of arguing that case um there's a really strange strange yet interesting interview on the disc with the director yeah talking all about like the framing of the imagery in the in the film and i think that's that's an approach to uh, well, to an interview, if nothing else, that I've not seen mm. before, and that, that was quite fascinating on its own. Okay, so that was it. That was all the Masters of Cinema news that I had, but I thought we could talk about you, and you are based in Hong Kong, aren't you? Yes, I've been out here for 12 years now. And how did you get into like the film community, and is there a film community in Hong Kong? Is it close-knit, or...? Well, yeah, there's a very, um, there is a close-knit sort of Chinese language sort of film, film media community, if you like. Um, hmm. You know, and I have become as, as close as I'm allowed to become to them, you know, being, that, you know, being one of the few uh, journalists who, who writes in English. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, generally, the, it's, it's a nice crowd, actually. But I, I kind of forced my way in, to be honest. It was something that I... I didn't come here to do that. Uh, I came here sort of with, just with, with my girlfriend at the time. Actually, she was an expat, and so she had born. She was born here, grew up here, and then we had met in the UK, and we're living together there. And uh, she said, "This is great, but I'm homesick. Do you fancy coming mm. to Hong Kong? Because I want to go home." And so we did. So we just came out on a whim, and I was teaching. But I, you know, Phil, I studied I studied film at university, and it was always something that I wanted to get into whether uh, practical in a practical way, whether into script writing or into sort of journalism and criticism, and that just seemed the easiest in uh, from my current position. And so uh, there are, you know, there are some English language publications here, some daily, you know, daily newspapers, weekly magazines, and so I just approached a couple of the magazines and started doing reviews for them, and slowly chipped away at it, really. Mm. And. You you live off of writing a film. You don't have any other job. Uh, this is like a professional job for you. Um, it is. I, well, I do have. Uh, okay, how to put this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, yes, I'm a freelance writer. Unfortunately, I can't do just film related work. It doesn't. It doesn't pay well enough on its own. Mm. Um, so I, I do do other things. But then a year ago, I had to take a full time job, which I've just quit. So, so I'm uh, <laughs> at the end of this month. I will be full time freelance again. Um, mm. But no, I pick. I have to do a lot of sort of copywriting work, editorial work in uh, other areas that are not film related, um, unfortunately. But I'm, you know, I'm I'm developing that. I'm working towards that. And a fair amount of what I do is is film related. But uh, and you, you know, I've been seeing uh, scary 
editorials coming out of the UK recently about the death of film criticism and uh, <laughs> as, a, as a proper job, as a proper profession. And so that's slightly mm. daunting on the eve of going freelance again. But uh, we can but try. <laughs> but when, when you like approach a film and when you are supposed to be writing about a film, how do you... How do you approach it? How do you, what kind of mindset do you go into when you're watching a film? And do you watch a film differently if you're not going to be writing about it? A, a lot of the assignments I get are after the fact. So I'm never fully, uh, I can never fully relax really mm. when, I, when I'm watching something, a new release that is. Um, because I know that there is always the possibility that a month down the line, because um, one of the, like, for example, one of the publications I write for is uh, Cathay Pacific's in-flight magazine. And they're mm -hmm. always a couple of months behind. So something that, so I'm always writing about stuff that I saw, you know, a couple of months ago. And <laughs> so I'll get, I'll get the email and it'll be like, hey, can you review The Great Gatsby? And it's like, ah, oh, I saw that, you know, back in May or something. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I have do to kind of... Do you watch that film when you write it or do you just go off your memory? It it honestly depends. I mean, it's, it depends how how confident I feel. Uh, on on my own blog, uh, the Society for Film dot com. Just to plug it quickly, uh, I do try and keep up to date with everything I watch and write at least a few words about everything. Um, and what that's one of the reasons. It's so that when I go back at the end of the year, something may have sort of dulled in my in my memory to some degree. Mm. But if I go back and read something that I wrote wrote about it at the time, I'll be like, oh wow, you know, I really did like this. And mm. you know, there might be an aspect of it that I really appreciated at the time that I've since forgotten about, or something like that. So I do like to keep that habit up, um, uh, and that helps in these situations. But yeah. it, you know, I think I'm always reminded of uh, when I first started my film studies degree. Uh, our lecturer got up and said, uh, "This will ruin the way you watch films for the rest of your life. Uh, you'll, ne <laughs> you'll never be able to just sit and relax and kick back and enjoy the story ever again." And that's certainly true. Um, yeah. But I try, I try and go into every film uh, with, without any preconceptions um, and give it a fair shot. And I, you know, and it, that is troubling sometimes when I do come out of certain uh, romantic comedies or quote-unquote chick flicks or something something that i wouldn't expect to like and i actually realize i've quite enjoyed myself um <laughs> despite what despite my preconceptions but uh you know i try and give everything a fair shot and i you know but i have to keep in the back of my mind that i might end up having to write something about this at some point hmm. and you run a podcast as well tell us about that uh yeah well this is uh also on the society for film dot com uh with a friend of mine called fernando Gro who used to live in Hong Kong, and um, he's a, a like-minded individual. He's not a professional film critic, but he's, a, he's an academic and a, uh, he's a music producer and a photographer. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an intelligent man who likes his films. And uh, he left Hong Kong about three, two, three years ago. And it was more as much as a, a way of staying in touch as anything else that we decided, OK, well, let's start a podcast just so that we can... Uh, give each other a call every week or two and just chat movies. And it's been going quite well. So he now lives in Tokyo. So he's not too far away. And, um, mm. and it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's been going pretty well. I mean, it's slightly erratic cause we're trying to do it in, in between everything else. But, uh, mm -hmm. we just recorded our 40th episode, uh, this morning. So 40, that's quite impressive. Thank you. How yeah. long have you been there uh, going on? Going I, on I think officially probably two years. So, mm. You know, the idea was first to do every week. That never happened. 
once a month <laughs> didn't seem often enough and so we're uh, at the you know we're, we're juggling with somewhere in between at the moment so we're quite happy to have got that far it's hard like to if you're doing only once a month it's hard to get that kind of flow going because you're you kind of need to figure each other out and figure out the like the pattern of talking every time you start up a conversation right and finding that you can't you can't you don't have time to do it too often you can't like uh, i can't record a show every week but like the two week uh, back and forth it seems to work for me yeah i think i think something like every fortnight seems mm. about right i mean from a from an audience point of view as well i think once a month uh it doesn't really get into the routine of into the listener's routine perhaps enough and, no. and you may be easy, you know you may be easily forgotten uh kind of thing uh whereas uh, every week is just a slog for you to record and for you to do i mm. find um so, so yeah somewhere in the mi- in the middle there so yeah well, every two weeks or something because yeah like you say i think building up a rapport with your co-host is very very important yeah. as well you know getting to know them and um you know some people are able to do it in you know sit in the same room and and do it that way and obviously that's the best but uh yeah for guys like yourself who are in in another country it's uh mm. to, to your co-host and it's quite tricky but you've got yeah. to do what you can uh, okay, so today we are going to be discussing Onibaba, uh, but before we do that, uh, this is a uh, trailer for the film. to you to ask you onto the show and uh, you requested that we discuss Onibaba. Why did you choose this film? Right, well, you, you said it was going to be a Halloween episode and we should do a horror film and um, yeah. certainly out of the, the the Japanese horror films that they have in the collection so far, Onibaba is my personal favourite, I think. Um, there's just I, there's something about the you know the striking imagery in there the kind of the, the simplicity of it all i'm i'm a big sucker for for films i think alex cox says it in his uh introduction or that's on the disc actually that hmm. there's something uh about a very simple setup and a very simple story that enables you to project so much more onto it and uh in return to take so much from it and it always just stuck with me i watched it first it it was it was the Criterion DVD when that came out in probably 2004 or something like that. I remember reading about it in Harry Knowles's DVD column or something like that on Ain't It Cool <laughs> News, and he was he was going on about the the artwork on the on the DVD cover and how that had sort of uh, caught his eye, and it, and in turn it caught mine, and I, I went and hunted it hunted it down, and um, since then I've seen it a few times. I've been lucky enough to see it on the big screen and. I I just love the the mood of it and how it's so uh you know so so striking and so sort of sexual and so uh 
horrific, but at the same time, uh, is a very you know a sort of politically socio politically aware tale of of sort of poverty and survival and and all the rest. Of it. It's it's got everything in there without being sort of cluttered, and uh, mm. I think that really appealed to me. It's a it's really like easy to get into the film it's really approachable as i think alex cox says that it's an incredibly approachable film as compared to something like naked island mm. with all the things that you mentioned that it's kind of brutal and sexual and bloody and it has all these like basic simplistic themes that we can all relate to there's this very strong commercial story that is quite crowd-pleasing where you have all these you have like this love triangle that is without the it's without the love and sentiment but there's this uh, jousting back and forth between these three characters and all about like sexual imprisonment and the absence of morality and how mm. war sort of sets his mark on the entire society and i feel like the the film it deals with all of these like social political issues and commercialism and capitalism and wartime and all of this, but it you can also like look away from all of that and just enjoy it for the simple ghost story that it is. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's you can take from it exactly what you want, and uh, you can read into it as much as you want. And yeah, I think you're right. It can be just a simple sort of horror story. Uh, but it do, can't. do you think we read perhaps too much into the film because of its simplicity? We're sort of putting onto it all of these other themes that we are talking about. Well, I think there's always a danger of that. I think mm. if you by looking at uh, Shindo's other other work and certainly where he came from and what was what his preoccupations were up up to this point, I think it's quite safe to say that certainly the. Um, uh, the statements about capitalism and about survival and about poverty and and all of that it are are intentional and certainly are hmm. there you know i mean this is a sort of natural progression from from something like naked island uh hmm. where you know where where people have said to him his his backers or the studio have said okay so you can keep to this kind of theme but it really needs to be more commercial it really needs uh you know to sex it up a bit and uh <laughs> and, and and add to some 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 violence and some scares in there or something uh you know it's it seems it seems a very conscious decision to make something far more commercial ironically when it is such a scathing uh attack on capitalism um mm. but no i agree that yeah there is always uh a, a, a worry about you know am i am i reading too much in this am i am i just trying too hard but i think here i think here it's uh, you can justify and you can quite safely and convincingly argue uh any any of those themes i think it's i think i think they are there mm. yeah I, I would agree and you can hear Shindo, he, he keeps bringing up these themes and uh, in interviews and in the commentary on the on the disc itself. And we can definitely see that this like inhumane supply and demand society that they are living in, where they are being corrupted and just destabilized through just the nature of war itself. And it's, it's definitely something that uh, I think everyone, even if you don't have any knowledge about 
Japanese society, you can still relate to uh, events that are happening and relate it back to something that has... I mean, we all live in a society where war is going on and we can definitely draw parables from this film to our own society. It's this melding of the modern and the ancient that Shindo greatly... Like, he, he manages to put the present and the past in sort of this melting pot in Onibaba, I feel, where we can see it as a 14th century ghost story that deals with the war that is going on that time, where you can also draw um, over to war profiteers in the Second World War or something in our society right now. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly something quite timeless about sort of about the film and and all the themes in it, and uh, I like the idea that we I think we we tend to assume that capitalism is a fairly new invention, um, but here we see that even at the at the basis level of society where everything has been stripped away and it literally is two women in a field trying to feed themselves, that still this idea of uh, sort of collecting goods and uh, and dealing with in goods in order to uh, to make money and and to to buy food with that sort of ex- exists even in this society of of just grass and and water and and sweat and blood <laughs> that they're in and um so I quite liked I I quite like sort of how uh how he points out just just to what to degree the this sort of commercial hunger has kind of uh, embedded itself into sort of human existence now i think that's that was quite uh quite scathing and quite satirical but uh, but but very true at the same time and it, it's something that the film opens with this that we get these two characters these two men going through this big a uh, field of like Suzuki grass, and the first time I watched the film, I I knew nothing about it, so I thought that these were the two characters we were going to follow. And mm. being a male viewer, I, it's I don't know why, but you kind of the first person you see, if it's a male, you th- you're sort of thinking that maybe this is the character that is supposed to be the protagonist. And I I don't know if female views uh, or if you. Um, had that same experience but when they were then attacked you sort of you, you're thinking that okay they are being hunted by two other samurai or something like that but when you when these two women they uh, came uh, out in into the pitch and out of those fields and you're you sort of I was sort of surprised by the um, the trickery that was going on the the duplicity that uh, Shindo sets up, where we are, we're kind of caught off guard when these yeah. two women are approached. Absolutely, I mean, I think it, yeah, it's very deliberate. It's very sort of sneaky the way he he does it. He does that. Yeah, he sets up the the samurai and then uh, pulls the rug out from under us as much as mm. from them. You know, because they feel they're safe. You know, they're they're hidden. And uh, yeah, the way that uh, we see the spear tips come in before we see anything else, you know, and it's a very ag- aggressive uh, attack on them, you know, and, mm. and they are, you know, proven warriors, you know, and, and they're, they're supposedly quite sort of formidable opponents, opponents even mm. in a weakened condition. And, you know, who it is, it's these, uh, it's these two women. And I think um, that, that's one of the things I like about the film, actually, is that uh, at a time, you know, Japanese 
so society and culture in in general is is still a pretty sort of uh, male centric and patriarchal and i think it mm. was um quite quite daring still at the time to to focus on these two women and two such ruthless women as well you know they're they're professional murderers at the end of the day uh but without it jeopardizing their kind of sexuality you know they don't have to be uh you know they're not uh the, the, whatever the female version is of emasculated is you know they're not they don't they don't lose their femininity but at the same time they um uh i think it just makes them more frightening certainly you know mm. no no man is safe no one is safe but certainly the men are not safe uh from 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 the women here you know and uh appearances can be deceptive and, and all of that kind of thing and i think it's uh that, yeah, the whole setup is a deliberate attempt for Shindo to to wrong foot his audience in the in the first few minutes of the film, and then uh, he, I think he continues to do so because I mean the film seems to I mean as we've already mentioned it, it touches on a number of themes, but it seems to touch on one at a time. I hmm. feel, and that it be it sort of it, it either builds or it it sort of comes apart and reveals more and more layers and more and more sort of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it sort of issues that it, it wants to deal with. I feel that it sort of introduces one thing at a time. Uh, and just as we feel that we're getting sort of a handle on what kind of film it is, then it suddenly becomes this kind of uh, sort of sexualized, highly sexualized melodrama for a little while. Mm. And then it, and then it suddenly becomes sort of a, a ghost story uh, again in, 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 the, in the third act. And I feel that uh, Shindo is deliberately trying to sort of... Uh, uh, not let the audience second guess where he's taking the story. Mm. Very much so. Um, do you feel that we have... I think uh, Doug Cummings, in his essay uh, in the booklet that uh, comes with the film, he mentions that um, Shindo treats these two women with such empathy. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I feel like he is investigating this society and investigating these characters, but I never feel that he's trying to give them a fair shake. Whenever I never feel that he's treat, he's treating them kindly or anything. I feel that he's always, there's always this sense of um, doom or judgment that is, it's going to come someday that these two characters, they can't go on like this forever and you sort of I feel like he's um treating these characters with some disdain perhaps yeah I mean they're certainly sort of fallen women um hmm. and yeah I I can't I don't know about I mean Shindo has said in his interviews that he he relates to the older woman the mother-in-law uh hmm. which I found quite surprising because yeah. um for me she's the villain really in all of this because so. i i don't feel i mean i th i think you know your point of of empathy uh is is the younger woman is the is the daughter the daughter-in-law mm. the wife uh, and you you can't help but feel that the the mother-in-law has talked her into this uh, way mm. of life purely out i mean out of necessity but i don't think it was uh, i don't think there's any doubt about whose idea it was and um you know and she seems she seems she's in charge she dictates what happens and then as soon as uh 
you know things start not you know start uh, not going her way when Hatchy turns back uh, turns up back from war uh she is the one who goes out of her way to uh ensure that that her little uh, murderous family is not um <laughs> is not jeopardized in any way and so i was very surprised when um when I, you know when shindo sort of revealed in one of his interviews that that was his point of contact and that was uh who he empathized most with because and then i don't think his um uh his explanation was particularly satisfying because <laughs> <laughs> if you read the transcript i i don't really think he answers the question because um i think the interviewer i mean this is in the booklet as well i think the hmm. interviewer was quite taken aback that um it doesn't that, it doesn't really shine through in the film neither no no, so I don't know whether that was a a joke lost in translation, perhaps, mm. or uh, <laughs> or what. But I, yeah, I neither I neither agree with him nor particularly understand his reasoning for it. I think. The, I, uh, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say I don't think there's any doubt, but I think the the person we're supposed to be empathising with is uh, is Jitsuko Yoshimura as um yeah as the young wife or young widow because the the film is um, based on this old. Buddhist story that was meant to tell the uh, mothers and fathers-in-law that they should treat their daughter-in-law with some respect, right? And that is definitely something that comes through in the, in the film that you you have to treat uh, your daughter or son-in-law with some uh, warmth and respect, and you can't you can't trick them like the mother in the film is doing yeah i think so i think there's also sort of a uh, a, a parental cautionary tale to to not smother them you know and to give mm. them a certain degree of independence as well um because obviously this was made in uh 64 as well so perhaps uh there was a little bit of the uh the, the sort of sun tribe mentality in, in some of this as well about a little bit of a you know because it was at a time of great sort of youthful rebellion in Japan as well, so perhaps uh, Shindo was siding was siding with the but the, yeah well, well the film makes it think like he's siding with the with the with the youngsters and the younger generation who want to kind of mm. go out and roll in the hay as it were and uh, <laughs> live life to the full. Um, but then yeah, I've got you know if I'm going to always stumble over this idea that he was like no 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 that the the mother <laughs> is right, so I might have to just forget he said that. And, uh, <laughs> Because <clears throat> the film certainly seems to suggest it certainly seems to side with the with the younger generation and say that mm. you know you, there's nothing wrong and that's the future. The future is to get out there and to uh, to move on. Don't wallow in the past and to to make something of your life while you, when you have mm. the opportunity. <clears throat> How did you feel about the the Hachi character? He he comes across as a bit of a baboon, <laughs> like this very very primal. Uh, well, all three characters are pretty primal, but mm. he comes across as like there's no there's no holds barred in his mind. Everything goes basically, and every impulse is acted upon almost. Yeah, exactly. He's 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 a very sort of impulsive character. I mean, there's a lot a lot of men in these kind of Japanese films tend to be, you know, if they see something or often someone that they want, 
Uh, mm. There's never any concern about whether or not they should. It, they no. just they just do it, and uh, <laughs> that's certainly the case here. I mean, at, at one point very early on, it's quite interesting, and there's an interesting sort of contradiction where he first returns and he talks about how difficult it was the first time he had to kill somebody, and how you know he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do it, and the two women sort of shoot each other a, a knowing glance because obviously they've been doing this for a long time. Um, yeah. But then later on, he's bragging about how he murdered a priest for his clothes, and <laughs> because you know the, the disguise helps him travel in safety. And in, um, so, yeah, he's a pretty um, sort of base character. But that, you know, he's been through a lot. But he's uh, he's he's clearly uh, you know hasn't isn't isn't really in a position where he's going to learn anything from his from his mistakes or from his experiences. And yeah, he immediately returns and uh, makes advances on his, his best friend's newly widowed wife after. And, you know, and I think it's interesting that you never really find out the truth about what happened. And part of me wonders, because obviously he knew these women beforehand. And part of me wonders Mm. whether uh, he, you know, whether the story about what, what became of, uh, of his best friend, their, their, uh, you know, son and, husband respectively whether that's true or you know for all we know maybe he just double crossed him because he wanted to come back and uh and have his wife all to himself i mean i, I think it's left very very ambiguous as to what really happened hmm. the final character in the film uh we also have this merchant but the final character that's given some um bigger amount of screen time is this uh samurai that arrives at about an hour into the film with the uh, wearing the mask mm. and i'm uh i'm wondering what what do you think that he represents is it the morality aspect of it all that he he comes in to like bring it everything to a balance or bring everything to a, a certain end i feel like he's kind of this catalyst maybe that he is a he's a um a tool for the story but it's not really a fully fledged character i feel well, I think he gives sort of a glimpse of of the other side, as it were. I mean, because he's he's from the opposing uh, army, uh, mm. as far as I understand. You know, not he's not from the same side as as Hachi and from of, of their um their son. Uh, and you know, he's he's obviously a a leader. He's a general. He's a man of wealth, and he is uh you know he's come a long way. And he's he's obviously very arrogant, and very full of himself. And I think he's there really to um. To to sort of give a glimpse, uh, maybe to to place. It's difficult to say, really. He's. I mean, he. Part of him, me thinks he's there to, like you say, to move the story along. I think. Uh, you know, we have to at some point introduce that mask. Uh, you know, he suffers from the same thing, doesn't he? He suffers mm. from the same thing as the mother. There's some. There's some difficulty removing that mask from him, and and that. Is what I find quite curious. I mean, because he he has fashioned this as as a piece of his own armor, right, in order mm. to to appear more more ferocious and more more scary to the opposition. But then when she tries to take it off, uh, it it sort of comes under the same demonic curse as uh, as we'll we'll see that she falls under later. So, what is he there to represent? I think he's there to represent sort of what's really going on in Japan at that time. You know, it's a bit of a sort of uh a sort of time out, as it were, a bit of a sort of time check and just to see 
to see what's going on. It's a, it's a, it's a glimpse of, of the war, a glimpse of the sort of the reality, uh, and that uh, there are there are grander things at work going on here. But uh, he proves to be just as kind of arrogant uh, and vain as uh, as everybody else. I think. What, what do you feel? Um. He he's kind of an enigma for me uh, in that I feel that we we learn very little about him. Mm. So uh, all of his background story, we it's interesting hearing you talk about it because it got me thinking that there must be some reason why he need to he needed to don this mask and and put fear in a person or several persons um, through wearing this mask and that. Perhaps he isn't, or none of the characters in this film are innocent, basically. And no matter what person we are meeting, there will always be some sort of dark secret in their lives that will... uh, There's some sort of corruption that happens with all the characters we meet through just them being in war. And Mm. I feel like perhaps he, he, he represents something... To that effect, but uh, other than that, it's uh, yeah, it's difficult to talk about that character. He's such a he's such a blank page in my book that you're sort of I'm sort of grasping for the Suzuki reads to say, sort of grasping for uh, something that uh, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. Right, right. I mean, it might be something something as simple as uh, we needed a, a vessel or something in order to to. To bring the mask into the story, because I mean, she mm. wasn't in a position to make this mask herself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you might be onto something there about uh, showing how uh, ingrained uh, the the corruption and the evil mm. is in in all levels of society. I mean, he's clearly from a completely different world to them. You know, he's a very a very rich. And a privileged guy, you can tell by the sort of the arrogance and by the elaborate the, the elaborate nature of his of his armor. Uh, yeah. But yet he proves to be just as as much of a flawed character. So I guess perhaps that underscores the fact that um, uh, you know again it's the you know it's it's a digger capitalism. It's even even those with wealth and, and with the means to uh, to live a privileged life. You know that there, there is no, you know, you know, as they say, you know, money can't buy you happiness, kind of thing, and it's mm. not going to make you a better person. So perhaps there's an element of that in there as well. It's an incredibly sparse film in that there's uh, really four characters in the film, and not only that, but it's very visually sparse as well. It, we're surrounded by these incredibly tall reeds where they can they can basically hide and get away from everyone's eyes. The only time they go out into the open is when they go to um, get water from the river. Mm. And just that incredibly visual feeling of the, of the film where if they take like two steps to the side, they can disappear into these reeds and you, you won't be able to see them. It, it creates this sort of tension and this sort of claustrophobia in the film. Oh, very much so. I mean, I think it's the single most striking image of the film. It's certainly what it, what stays with me the most. Uh, I read recently that Ben Wheatley um, cited it as a major influence on the, the look of his latest film, A Field in England, mm. actually. Um, 
but it, I, I feel that it, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the reeds certainly play uh, as much of a part of the, of the story as anything else. I think similar to Naked Island, I mean, this is again a story of sort of humanity battling against the elements as much as anything else. And, uh, you know, the savage, the savagery of Mother Nature and of the earth itself and how it is, it's not accommodating, quite simply. Mm. I mean, they live, they live in a swamp you know a field next to a swamp and sure they can use it to their advantage at times when hunting but essentially you know it it does hide them away from from the war but uh, you know it makes them it only accentuates uh their their role in society as as sort of a scavenger as like a sort of a a mouse or a rat or Mm. something like that you know they're Mm. they're really not operating in any sort of meaningful way or, or interacting uh, in any kind of meaningful way, I think, but um, purely, yeah, purely on a visual level, I think it's, um, it's phenomenal. And I think it's uh, one of the things that the film has, uh, has, has, uh, has lasted so long in people's memories is because of this just ocean of ocean of grass that is used mm. to such great effect. There's always, always sort of, uh, you know, it's it's battling against them, but at the same time, it's the way it moves all in one motion, sort of uh, with the wind. It almost feels sort of alive and like it's heavy breathing, and I think it adds to the kind of in that respect, it adds to sort of the sensuality and the sexuality of of what's going on. It makes everything feel very, very like you say, very claustrophobic, but very close and very sort of uh, yeah, sensual. You know, the, the, there's deep breathing going on around them all the time. If if, if yeah. you know what I mean. This is there's like this pulsating, yeah, vibration almost through mm. just the nature and how everything is constantly in movement. So you're always kind of off balance as Shindo, like uh, as we talked about earlier, where Shindo is always bringing in some new element to the story to keep us sort of off base. Uh, I feel like the the environment and the elements of the nature and how they affect the characters is very it very much plays into that yeah definitely definitely i think it really does keep you kind of off balance because it's not it's not an environment that we're familiar with or that we can relate to i mean if it was a a normal village or or a street scene or something a bit more urban uh or even you know even a beach or something like that you know you can you it's tangible you can understand that you can draw from personal experience but i don't think anybody really has the experience of living in the conditions that they're living in or uh, you know having this undulating sort of environment around them all the time and i think yeah it keeps you keeps us honest our toes but it's just yeah it, sh- it shows you that the sort of the environment is alive and anything can happen and you don't know where it's going to come from because the whole thing is is kind of moving at all times and the whole you know everything is alive around them it's, it's incredible like reading about the background and the how they made the film it seems like everyone who made the film they sort of moved out to these reeds like mm. a big family and just they weren't allowed to leave by shindo they they could only leave a, a weekend uh every two or three weeks or something and everyone was sort of trapped in this um in this inhumane environment and it, it, i think that it it seeps through the filmmaking that you can sense that they they very much they are very much familiar with their with the environment that the characters are living in they it seems like they have a they have a knowledge of the earth that sort of it comes through i I can't explain Mm. but it's you can sense it basically 
Yeah, definitely. I, I I always love hearing these stories of of productions like this where everybody is forced to live in the same conditions as the characters, <laughs> particularly you know something as sort of horrifically hostile as as this. Uh, and I but I think I know what you mean. I mean it puts it puts everybody in in a similar mindset, and I think it really mm. does come through in sort of the cinematography and the pacing and and obviously the music as well, which is which is incredibly strange and and memorable mm. as well. But um. Uh, and yeah, no, I love the idea that Shindo said, yeah, everybody's got to stay out here. And if you don't, if you leave, you don't get paid. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, you've got to, you have to endure and then you will reap the rewards, which is essentially the position these women are in. You know, they, they have to stick this through if they're gonna, if, if they're gonna be rewarded for it, if they, you know, if they're gonna reap any kind of benefit from it. Hmm. And not only, not only the read, but I also found that visually the use of like, shadow and light and the amazing night sequences and mm. how he he creates this sort of um artificial sense when he's he he puts like a spotlight on some characters uh, at times where the entire screen almost goes black and there's this spotlight of light going on two characters that are making love or this uh, ghost character coming through the reeds or the mother um running towards Hachi or the daughter or yeah there's it, it's he creates this artificial there's no sense of he doesn't try to portray uh it as it really is in real life so to mm. speak but he he puts this artificiality onto it that puts it it puts it into another another realm so to speak it, it, it's not real life anymore but it's this uh, otherworldliness or this fantastical feeling to it. Yeah, I think it underscores the fact that I mean that this is not a subtle film in any in any degree. I mean, it's incredibly sort of stark and black and white, and it deals with very um, sort of uh, very clearly defined sort of binary oppositions between sort of uh, you know between the rich and the poor and and good and evil and night and day and and uh, sort of sex and violence and things like that. And I think that the, uh, the the photography only sort of serves to accentuate that. You know, the the, the environments are either the, you know this incredibly sort of arid field or or the river. Really, they're the two environments. Or, um, and I think I think all of that really uh, is is underscored by the by the cinematography. Yeah, everything is is sort of there are no shades of grey here. You know, a lot of the imagery is very like there's some very obvious imagery. There's a scene where. Um, uh, with, with the with the hole and with the tree, you know, with them, where where <laughs> Hachi goes to the hole and he looks de- deep into a hole and says, "Ah, oh, I need a woman." And then she, <laughs> when she needs a man, she goes and hugs the biggest tree, and the you know the camera yeah. kind of looks up. It's like the most obvious phallus you've ever seen, and it's just like, okay, <laughs> you know, this this film is not um is not going for subtlety. It's just it's going as big and bold as it possibly can, and mm. um, I think uh, yeah, I think I think the cinematography. Is, is uh, yeah, only only serves to accentuate that. But I think that's what I like about it. I think it goes back to um, sort of the simplicity of you know, as I was saying in the beginning, the simplicity of the film is one of the things I like about it mm. because it is so sort of clear cut about the themes. I don't think mm. it's particularly, um, as we were saying, I don't think it's particularly judgmental. But at the same time, I think it's it, it presents these ideas you know it says that this is these are not particularly likable people but this is what they have to do in order to survive mm. and uh, it just offers up uh these very sort of stark 
contrast and lets lets its audience kind of uh, project on it what it wants and take from it what it wants as well. And uh, but yeah, I mean, the look the look of the film is everything to me. It's it's fantastic. It's interesting that you mentioned that the characters they they're not very likable, but they are doing everything they can to survive. Because if we think about it in terms of our time now, these are our uh, ancestors, basically. So we are descendants of killers, and mm-hmm. we are descendants of people who have um, sort of horrible morals. And I feel that there's some sort of criticism of modern society as well, with uh, Shindo making this film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a certain sort of Darwinian element to mm. it all you know th- this is survival of the fittest it's kill or be killed it's it's you do you do whatever whatever is necessary in order to survive and i think that whenever we are forced to um yeah embrace the fact that that we have evolved f- from people like this <laughs> uh i i don't know i guess i guess in that respect it, it's kind of reassuring it's like okay fine i don't have to i don't have to kill in order to get my next meal um mm. But yeah, I mean, you're you're always you're always being given these um, uh, these ideas that how how different is it really? Yeah. To that today, and you know, I think all art is always asking these kind of questions. It's about you know, there, I think there's no there's no doubt that uh, the ways in which we have evolved are, are ultimately fairly superficial, and perhaps mm-hmm. we've we've learned to sort of live to together better. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of the day, I think if it's uh, you know, if if ever the the equilibrium of, of society is 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 sort of upset in any way, then uh, yeah, we're we're to, we're uh, it's pointed out to us that we will do what it takes in order to survive for those and for those that were our loved ones. And uh, I think it's a fairly uh, frightening reality. But um, I yeah, don't, I don't the... think I don't think this film really uh, tries to tell us any different. I don't no. Know. <laughs> No, because the film, it could easily be set in today's society in like a post-apocalyptic feeling to it. Absolutely, yeah. It's not hard visualising this in just modern-day clothing and modern-day warfare. Yeah, it, it, it definitely feels like it could be a sort of uh, a, a sort of Mad Max era, sort of dystopian yeah. society. Uh, yeah, anything <laughs> where, where technology has basically been removed from the equation. I think, mm. and uh, and your survival instincts are kicking in, uh, and yeah, and again, I think that just makes it more, all the more accessible and universal. Because I mean, on its surface, it's incredibly Japanese. Uh, you know, it, it's set in a particular part of history, and it deals with sort of folklore that is pretty unique to Japanese, and you know, certain characters and all the rest of it, but only on a very superficial level. You know, you take you take off this this veneer of uh, 14th century feudal Japan, and it's yeah, it's incredibly accessible from for anybody. I think. You you mentioned the music uh, earlier, and it's 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 in line with everything that we've been talking about, with the just the simplicity and the rawness, and just the savage primal sounds that uh, Hikaru Hayashi produces in this, like very, it's this bass drumming jazzy technique that he's using and these chilling screams that it 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 just brings i feel that it heightens tension when it needs to it brings a balance to the film and it's just an incredibly 
it's not something that I could listen to without watching the film, but I feel like it fits <laughs> the film so essentially. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's not very melodious. You, you, no. It's not one you're going to stick on your on your iPhone and, uh, and it's not and Hans Zimmer to. or something. No, absolutely not. But at the same time, I mean, some of it's great. I mean, I really love the kind of sort of the jazzy riffs that you, you get in the opening credits, for example, and mm. then. Um, yeah, you get lots of very tribal dr- drumming. There's something that sounds like somebody's being flogged <laughs> quite yeah. a few times. You know, there is a whip and a scream and a whip and a scream. And it's like, okay, you know, this is, again, I think it just really heightens the kind of primal nature of all of this, you know, where, uh, you know, the, you, the, the drums are, are either sort of heavy footsteps or impending doom or they're the heartbeat as you're, as you're um, excited or as you're scared or whatever. And I think the, um, yeah, the, the whip and the scream is, is torturous, but there's something kind of basely sexual about it as well. And uh, mm. so all of that together. And I think that, you know, the jazz influences was certainly big at the time in Japan. And I think that, uh, that just sort of adds to the kind of free-spirited nature of it all, and the sort of the the uh, the, the off-kilter nature of it, and it, it's it's brilliant. It adds a real sort of sort of edginess to to the mood of the piece. Mm. And it, I feel like the film could work as a silent film. You don't really need any dialogue, or you don't really need to understand what the characters are saying to get the story. Right. You could definitely, like, remove all of the dialogue and just do this as a sound film. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. Actually, it's not it's not something I'd uh, thought about. But um, I think the only element you need to know is that the the man is missing. You know, and, and hmm. um, that could be done obviously with a couple of intertitles. But yeah, hmm. it's like as I've said before. I think it's all in the imagery and in the music, and uh, you know, the performances are great, but they don't really need to say anything. Uh, <clears throat> it's interesting yeah. uh, that even though they don't need to say anything, I still get this feeling that there's this very Shakespearean feel to it all, without mm. obviously the language, but there's this, it's just these morality issues and the sex and the murder, and there's this like predestination of tragedy that it will eventually come. And it could also work as a play, I think, because of its limited setting. Yeah, I think tonally it's kind of a bit like uh, Throne of Blood or something like that. You know, you've got these very kind of uh, gruff, feral characters uh, and they're all sort of doing each other in for uh, for power and for wealth and for, for, for their own personal gain, be that taking over a kingdom or just or just, you know, living another day out here in their little their little fiefdom that they've got. Um, yeah, no, there is there, there is something very um uh, very Shakespearean about it all. I think it sort of yeah, touches on those uh, per, you know perennial topics of uh, you know of jealousy and loyalty and uh, yeah the, the survival and the quest for 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 power and for escape and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, no, I, I'd go along with that for sure. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss? Well, I think we could we should really just uh, take a moment to acknowledge these two fantastic actresses mm. that are in it. I mean, uh, you've got Nobuku Ottawa, who plays the older woman, you know, the main character, really, the villainess, if you like, if you're not Shindo, um, who was obviously his, his muse and, uh, and future wife, I think, at this point. I don't think they were married yet, but I could be wrong. Mm. Um, you know, and she was obviously in Naked Island, and she'd be turned up in uh, Coroneco as well. 
And uh, yeah, while while we mention Coroneco, actually, I think uh, this is a very different looking film to Coroneco. I think Coroneco <laughs> feels far more uh, surreal and stylized and almost um, contained. This this very is very formal. Uh, very, right, very formal. Um, and there's only one moment in Onibaba, and that's right at the end. It's when they when they, well, it happens a couple of times when they leap over the the hole. The way that he yeah. shoots them leaping through the air is obviously very reminiscent of a of a, you know, great scenes all the way through Coroneco of them leaping from rooftop to rooftop all the way through that. But uh, but otherwise, I think uh, visually and stylistically, they're they're quite different. Actually, this one this one's uh, far less graceful here in Onibaba because there's a real raw energy to it. But uh, yeah, but Nabucco Ottawa is is always great. I mean, she manages to look. Uh, as she, as she there's a there's a, both actresses manages manage to be sort of very feral and quite sort of ugly and yet still attractive and and very sexual all at, all at once. And I was constantly changing my opinion. Of how you know of whether or not I found them attractive all the way through the film, which I found was quite strange. I mean, Ottawa particularly, um, she wasn't you know she she wasn't old at the time. I think mm. she might have been about forty or something like that. And there are some times where she's really you know uh, she's carrying it very well, and other times where she suddenly looks incredibly old and haggard. And she's always being referred to as being sort of past her prime and all the rest of it during the film. You know, she's being rejected left, right and centre by pretty much everybody. But, um, yeah, she was just, like, late 30s at the time. And so, yeah, by no means past her prime. But, yeah, so I think it showed an incredible sort of versatility. And uh, particularly compared with... I mean, she'd, yeah, we'd just seen her in Naked Island before this. And uh, there she's a very sort of stripped-down, very simple, uh, quite sort of stoic character. And here she's uh, she's quite the opposite. She's She's quite animalistic. And quite frightening, really. Yeah, her, her, just her physical appearance is—it's quite incredible and quite like—it's so striking the way she looks with the white stripes in her hair. Mm. And, yeah, and just those eyebrows—the <laughs> huge <laughs> eyebrows. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mess with them <laughs> for, <laughs> for sure. But then also you've got uh, Jitsuko Yoshimura, who was one of the sort of very familiar faces in this sort of period of uh, sort of rebellious. Uh, Japanese cinema at the time. She'd done some Imamura films like uh, Pigs and Battleships and The Insect Woman and stuff like that. And she turns up in Samurai Spy, which was by the same director who did. Um, oh, what's that? What's that gambling film that came out on the Criterion a little while ago? But I can't remember what it's called now. Mm. Uh, no, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> taking me too long to find it. But yeah, she was a very, very sort of familiar face in. Uh, in that kind of age of, uh, of sort of, I, I can't, I'm a uh, sort of Nikatsu era, mm. of sort of rebellious sort of crime films and what have you, and that's why I sort of, I, I think that the audience are more likely to side with her, because we've been, you know, we've been, we've seen her in these films playing sort of young rebellious uh, prostitutes and what have you in, in sort of the insect woman and things like that, and I think, you know, she, she, we would have automatically gravitated towards her and to her plight. You know, as the as the youngster being bullied by her parents into <laughs> into working you know, the family business, if you like. <laughs> so family uh, business, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but she's great. She's great, and she's still acting today. She's uh, she's about seventy now, but she's she's in a film called Ocean that's uh, that's screening around the country, around the world at the moment, actually. Mm. 
you mentioned the ending um and i wanted to talk briefly about that because it's it they're sort of the mother is chasing the daughter-in-law through the reeds after the daughter has um torn off this mask that uh the mother uh, was attached to and we see uh her face is all like it's all the all these uh bruises and all these um wounds that are on her and... it's like the skin's been torn away isn't it mm. and it, she looks like a like a victim of a uh, nuclear holocaust or something where there, there are these lesions on her face mm. she's just yeah uh, definitely, probably something to do with post-war Japanese society. I would feel, but the thing I wanted to talk to you about was when they are leaping over the hole and it freeze frames when the mother uh, jumps. Do you think that? Did do you think that she made it? Was that something that went through your mind when you saw that for the first time? That oh, I don't know if she made the jump or not, because the thing that went through my mind was. This is going to go on forever. She will make it, and she will be chasing this woman forever. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I never had. I never had the notion that she wouldn't make the jump. Yeah, no. She's. I think it is. Um, it underscores her sort of survival instinct, certainly, hmm. um, because you know she does it with the scream of "I'm a human being," because uh, hmm. uh, she's. You know, she's revealed her herself to to her daughter-in-law who's gone oh demon 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 and is running away and um we've seen her make this jump before as well from a running start you know she was stood right on the edge when the the uh the, the rich samurai the masked samurai is right behind her and she does it from a standing stop so i don't think there's i don't think really there's any um there's any doubt that she's capable of doing this um and i think yeah the point is that she's uh you know, she she maybe this is what Shindo's trying to get at that she embodies this sort of survivalist spirit that is uh, mm. you know that 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 the Japanese people are trying to project in this post-war era because obviously Shindo's from Hiroshima, that's his hometown, mm. so it, you know it really really hit him hard. <clears throat> you know, he would have been well, he was born uh, well, he he turned a hundred, didn't he, just before he died? So he was born in about nineteen ten, I think. Uh, so he would have definitely been <clears throat> sort of, uh, yeah, 1912, 1912 he was born. So he would have definitely have remembered what happened and it would have definitely hit, hit him very hard. Um, he was probably away fighting in the war, though, without looking it up. Um, but, I, yeah, maybe I think perhaps it's that. It's just the resilience of the human spirit and that, you know, you can call me an animal or whatever, but I will keep going and I will... I will live through this and I will live to fight another day and, uh, you know, nothing's mm. going to get me down. And I think perhaps, uh, perhaps you're right. Perhaps, uh, she is going to sort of keep going and no matter how much you might physically beat her down and hurt her and disfigure her and change her appearance, you know, change the country's appearance, you know, and you might flatten the country and what have you. And she might have to adapt and she might have to try something different and you could take her family away. I think there are all these, you know, you can do this to me. However, I am, I am a human being and I will survive kind of thing. Hmm. Very much about the resilience (laughs) of uh, humans. Yeah. Yeah. In all it warts and all quite literally. Hmm. And I feel like that is something that uh, Japanese film is. It's something that goes that comes again and again. The just the resilience of the, the people and the the pride that they have, and how they will 
fight for survival. I feel like that is something that runs through many of the Japanese films. Definitely. Certainly in this post-war era as well, Mm. I think. Because I think it was a big shock to a lot of them. I think they were were so sheltered before the war, and I think the, the image of the rest of the world that they were... Uh, that was painted to them by the uh, by the empire um hmm. was was uh you know was quite a bit of a lie really and uh i think it was all a bit of a surprise and a bit of a shock to them to discover to sort of to come out of this and discover that they were sort of perceived as the enemy and um and so they you know they had to sort of rebuild their identity from that regard but also the you know quite literally the physical um overhaul after after being sort of annihilated like this and being attacked at such a catastrophic degree i think um yeah it's very much part of the of the japanese spirit i think to uh to keep to keep going and to show the resilience i think this is a yeah, great example of that your like final thoughts are you very well versed in shindo's filmography how does this is this like something that is in line uh, you mentioned that it, it is in line thematically, but what about visually? Well, uh, I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a change, actually. I mean, the films that he was making, as far as I understand, this was a big turning point for him. The films that he was making up to this point, uh, you know, like The Naked Island being the most um, as a prominent and successful, certainly internationally, of these films. I mean, the guy's made so many films, <laughs> uh, but. Um, uh, you know, he was he was he was going for a, a, certainly a more sort of uh, social realist documentary style, I believe, in everything up up to this point. Hmm. Uh, and then, <clears throat> yeah, certainly, yeah, Naked Island, and I think in films like Children of Hiroshima and Story of a Beloved Wife, I think they're far more um, sparse visually. And this was a hmm. real a real about face for him and uh, I think that this actually started uh, a run of films for him that were far more uh, erotic and sexualized and and a real a real explorations into um, sort of sexuality and the female form and all this kind of thing he really kind of changed his his uh, modus operandi if you like after after this and I'm not sure what that was I think perhaps some people have suggested that he was frustrated with um, with uh, how how little impact the his political gestures were having, and that his in, and so his he he kind of got frustrated and decided the cow want to I'm going to try something else now, and um, yeah, by all accounts, Onibaba is is a real turning point. I mean, you only have to look at something like Kuroneko to see that he goes even more so in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in between in between those two, he's got films called Lost Sex and Libido. And a scoundrel and things like that. So it was an operation negligee. <laughs> so I would not, with films I haven't seen, but uh, I'm now going to. <laughs> now, that, now that I've uh, seen them written down, I think that's. Uh, and uh, you know, and then I don't know how much of his l- later stuff uh, you might have seen, but uh, <clears throat> even in, in the 80s, he was making films called Edo Porn and things like that. And I think that one. Is very much ab- uh, about. Uh, I think recently I saw somewhere that there was a big there's a big exhibition of sort of Japanese pornographic art, like mm. very fine sort of, you know, <clears throat> ink paintings, of really outrageous kind of crazy porn. Uh, it was it was somewhere very very highbrow, somewhere like uh, the Tate Gallery in London or 
somewhere in New York or something like that. And I believe that Edo porn really sort of explores some of that kind of thing. Um, so it was certainly an interest that stuck with him. But then you watch, I mean, his last film, Postcard, which uh, came out just before his death, uh, that came out in 2010. Uh, and that's a very sort of pretty straight up sort of wartime drama. Mm-hmm. Um about a, a friend who goes back to visit the parents of his uh, of his fallen comrade in order to return a postcard that he wasn't able to to send on his behalf or something like that. And uh, it's very a pretty straight dramatic. Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's very good actually. It's quite touching, but it's a very mm. sort of straight up drama. Um so he certainly cooled on his uh, on his earlier predilections. Mm. But Papa was quite a trailblazer when it came in terms of just depicting sexuality and uh, I think I read that it paved the way for films like In the Realm of Senses and you can definitely see uh, the link between these films. Definitely, definitely. I mean if that's the case it, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm not specifically sure how, you know where it falls in that sort of era of of Japanese filmmaking, but it's certainly no. one of the one of the earliest, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah, and again, it, 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 but it it came at a time when there was a definite movement away from uh, the more sort of staid and formalistic dramas of sort of Ozu and Mitsuguchi and uh, people like that. I mean, Kurosawa was really kind of doing his own thing. He was, you know. And many people considered him making sort of West, far more westernized movies. You know, he was being influenced by John Ford and people like that. Um, whereas the guys at Nakatsu and um, studios like that, you know, Seijin Suzuki and direct, or those directors were making these sort of young, a very uh, uh, sort of sexually frustrated sort of uh, teenager movies, Sun Tribe mm. movies, as they were called. And I think Onibaba quite comfortably fits in with some of those. Um, although the actual the actual era the sun the sun tribe movement itself was I think a few years earlier but I think its influence carried on and certainly all the people involved in those films uh, continued to explore these kind of things the the younger generation was certainly far more uh, interested in the in in this kind of thing rather than in uh, you know, the family dramas of, of Ozu for example. Um, you own the Masters of Cinema disc, don't you? I do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, what did you think of the packaging and just the the release itself? Uh, I think it's a great release. Uh, I was watching it, as I said, just uh, just this afternoon again. I, I gave it another spin, and I think it's a it's a it's a really good looking transfer that that, that, that is you know nice sharp image and it sounds fantastic. Um, hmm. The the packaging the imagery isn't bad. I mean that that Criterion Collection packaging is a, is tough to beat. I think uh, mm. the the artwork on that is pretty phenomenal, and um, I hope they keep it if they ever upgrade a uh, a Blu-ray version of that. Because obviously Onibaba they they've changed the artwork from the the, the old DVD that Master Cinema brought out because that was just to the a, better. I feel. Yeah, I certainly think that. I mean, because that that was just a headshot of the of the the, the young wife, sort mm. of looking slightly uh, apprehensive, and it was like, well, this could be anything, <laughs> you know. Really, I don't think was a fair representation of the film. I think this this sort of uh, new artwork of the of the mask split open on on the mother's face is certainly more impactful, and certainly mm. gives it some kind of indication of where the, what the kind of film is. Um, 
But I yeah. But I still I still think that Criterion one's the best. But but no, this is pretty good and it's got some great features on it. I haven't listened to the audio commentary, but uh, I did go through the thirty eight minutes of uh, of eight millimeter film that the uh, the actor who played Hatchy shot, and there's some some pretty uh, eye opening stuff there just about what it was like being on that set, you know, on that essentially mm. sort of isolated set in the, those fields of grass for the whole time. It was it was well worth sort of just putting on in the background and. I did it the other it. way around. I, I've listened to the commentary, but I haven't had time to look at the onset footage. Uh-huh, but, okay. uh, I will uh, watch the onset footage now. But cool. the commentary is um, it's more of them like reminiscing about the film, and you're not really you're not learning that much about the film. But it's 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 a nice commentary just to listen to how Shindo speaks about the film and how they. I think uh, the um, the girl in the in the movie is also on the. On the commentary as oh, well is, as is that who he does it with? Oh, great! Yeah, I, I think uh, another actor as well. I, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's the one playing Hachi. Yeah, it is Kei Sato. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's great! Yeah, because I did listen to his Naked Island commentary on the Master Cinema disc that came out uh, the same same month as this one, I think. Uh, <laughs> and that's and that's really good. It's very interesting. It's very anecdotal. It's not. It's not quite so much of oh, this is how we did this shot coming up now, but it was far more of a, what yeah, like you said, it was reminiscence is of uh, what he remembers from the shoot and uh, and that kind of thing, and so he's uh, it certainly he certainly makes for interesting listening for sure. I kind of I kind of wish that Alex Cox had um, recorded an own commentary because mm. his introduction to the film is I always feel that whenever Alex Cox. Um, contributes to a MOC film, it's sort of a stamp of approval, and I always know that uh, it's a film that I'm going to like because he's his film, or the way he talks about his films, uh, it's something that I can relate to, and I feel like he's always he's always choosing the interesting ones for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm not I'm not always a big fan of of Alex Cox's films, if I'm honest. No, but um. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, Alex Cox uh, has... I, I trust his opinion. I mean, obviously, way mm. back in the day in the UK, he used to present late-night films on something called Movie Drome on, on the BBC. So it was mm. like normally late on a Sunday night and there'd be these very sort of weird, eclectic kind of double bills and he would do the little video intros before them. And um, that was yeah during my formative years of like the early 90s probably i would often sort of tape those and have double bills of cronenberg films or that's where i saw django and invasion of the body snatchers and all kinds of things like that <laughs> and uh so yeah so the, the idea of alex cox introducing films to me is, is something i i'm very nostalgic about but i warm to and it's and it really is i think it's the best feature on this disc actually mm. it's uh it's, it's very insightful yeah, very insightful and very eloquent, and he's he's able to. It's not uh, like quote unquote highbrow the way he speaks. He, he he relates it very much to, and it, it's easy to understand what he's getting at. I think so. Yeah, yeah. He yeah he doesn't sort of uh, yeah over intellectualize it, uh, no. but he doesn't sort of talk down either. I mean, it's the the level he pitches it at is kind of just right. I think for for somebody like me. Uh, and I think that's why I warm to him so much. Is he, he he gives the kind of introduction that I, I would like to give, I guess, or that I would could really respond to. So yeah, it works for me. The um, video quality. The only thing I mentioned or then noticed, sorry, was that some of the pictures. It seems that 
uh, they were quite blurry at times but um it was it might be because of the um the lens that they used i don't think it's anything with the transfer itself but just the uh, the film stock and just what they are dealing with. It seems like uh, some of the shots they were, uh, especially when they were far away shots, mm. it was uh, you could see the blur in the uh, in the way the characters moved. That it's almost double exposure, slightly. Sure, um, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I did, I did spot a little bit of that. But yeah, you're right. It's it's impossible to know. I think whether that happened at the time or whether it mm. can and should be corrected. But it is uh, it is a stunning film. It looks really good. The blacks are really good, and just the the contrast and the definition of the characters. Yeah, it looks really good. I agree. I mean, if you need a high contrast image for any kind of film, it's it's this one, and it, and it really does stand out. It looks it looks great. I think, and the audio quality as well. Uh, it's only a, a two point but it's lossless HD, so it sounds really good on the speaker system. Yeah, I agree. I agree, it's a good package. Alright, um, I think we can wrap it up. So right. uh, you can plug your stuff. Well, you can always find my writing at uh, twitchfilm.com uh, or you can find my blog and my uh, podcast that I do with Fernando at thesocietyforfilm.com um, I'm also writing now for a, a, a British-based digital magazine called Verite that comes out every month and I think you can find that at veritefilmmag.com as well and download that for free every month and they're doing some good work over there uh, mm. you can follow me on Twitter at Marshy00 great, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, the first show uh, as a host uh, I had a great time doing it no, me too, a- anytime it was, it was a real pleasure, I, I really enjoyed myself great, um, listener you can find me at moc underscore cast uh, on twitter you can just search for masters of cinema cast on facebook tumblr instagram whatever and you can find me there uh, send an email to masters of cinema cast at gmail.com if you have any comments or would like to talk to me right i'll be back a couple of weeks from now with a new episode and a new guest thank you <laughs>